Welcome to Fearonomics, the podcast which helps you confront and overcome your fears about the global economy. We'll be looking at the latest economic data, debunking myths and defining the risks that we need to watch out for, and of course, those that we don't. In a year when we're witnessing recession, the highest inflation in decades and the cost of living crisis, the rising inequalities and the looming dangers of new waves of discrimination contribute to an already complex socio-economic tapestry which is around today. The pandemic has deepened inequality scars. The economic consequences of Russia's war on Ukraine threatens to make them even worse. What are the costs of discrimination to the global economy? How do we protect the most vulnerable groups? How do we stop them fearing discrimination? That's what we'll be trying to figure out today. My name is Jonathan Charles, and here with me, I've got Sergei Guriev, Professor of Economics at Sciences Po in Paris, and Beata Yavorchik, Professor of Economics at Oxford University, and the EBRD's Chief Economist, of course, and they will be helping us to assess the myths and fears that feed discrimination. Let's look at the context. Here are some facts. Despite the recent advancement in the equality of rights and inclusion, 45% of American workers have experienced discrimination and or harassment in the past year. That's according to a Gallup survey. The World Bank's Women, Business and the Law 2022 report states that around 2.4 billion women of working age don't have equal economic opportunities and 178 countries maintain legal barriers that prevent women's full economic participation. In early 2022, the LGBTQ plus advocacy group HRC Foundation found that LGBTQ plus workers earn about 90 cents for every dollar earned by a typical heterosexual US worker. That gap is felt more starkly by LGBTQ plus people of color, transgender women and men and non-binary people. It is estimated that today's STEM industries have lost up to 120,000 viable candidates due to the cumulative effects of anti-LGBTQ plus bias. And that is not even taking into account underrepresentation of women in the same industry. And the US economy alone has a staggering and has lost a staggering $16 trillion between 2000 and 2020. That's as a result of racial discrimination, according to research by City. So discrimination is certainly a paralyzing force in the advancement of inclusion and making, of course, the hope of making workforces more resilient. It hurts both groups, the ones that are being discriminated against and ones that discriminate. It is important to address these injustices, especially in the tough economic times that we're living in. So what do we do about it? Let's cost it. Uh, Beata and Sergey, why is discrimination so expensive? Uh, Beata, why don't you kick it off? Thank you, Jonathan. If men and women or whites and ethnic minorities have a similar distribution of skills, then discrimination is inefficient from the economic point of view. That's because talented women and minorities cannot pursue professions in which they can contribute the most to the economy. Eliminating discrimination, therefore, leads to faster economic growth. Consistent with this view, research shows that a large share of growth in the US GDP per capita between 1960 and 2010 can be explained by an improved allocation of talent. And this figure is quite big, uh, accounting for between 20 and 40% of growth. Interestingly, most of the effect comes from elimination of barriers to education, to eliminating discrimination in the educational system, but of course, declining discrimination in the labor market mattered as well. Sergey, 
Yes, I, I fully agree with Beata. And like you said, Jonathan, uh, discrimination is not only costly for those who are being discriminated, it's costly for everybody. If a talented uh, representative minority or a talented woman cannot pursue the occupation, the, the aspira career aspiration that uh, this person is uh, uh, likely to succeed in, then the whole society loses and in that sense in that sense discrimination is very costly there are estimates that uh, all the way improving all the way to gender equality can bring global economy about 10 trillion dollars a year that's almost 10 percent of global gdp and the reason for that is very simple women uh, are paid uh, about 20 percent less than uh, men as we speak today in the current world, and uh, women are half of the population. And so simply making women 20% more productive by eliminating the barriers that Beata has mentioned can actually uh, reduce uh, those gaps and uh, create additional economic opportunity, not just for the women, but also for the rest of the humanity. There's a lot to get out there. And I guess history also has something to teach us about this. Uh, I was reading a paper, research paper by Killian Huber. He's one of the authors of this research paper on how much the Aryanization of the German economy in the 1930s during Hitler's period in Germany actually cost, uh, you know, he was using evidence from firms. And the results are really pretty staggering. Aggregate uh, market value fell by roughly 1.8% of German GMP because of the expulsions uh, of Jews from uh, the economy. Firms that lost Jewish managers underperformed in the stock markets for decades. What, what's the impact, uh, do we think, of discrimination on firms that we, that we see today? Um Yes, I think I think these uh, these estimates are actually modest, Jonathan, because uh, uh, what uh, what this paper is looking at is contemporaneous effect. But uh, the discrimination of Jews in Nazi Germany resulted in a major hit on a German R and D sector, on German science. German was a superpower in science in uh, the first half of 20th century, and uh, most of German scientists have actually left because of uh, because of what's happened in Nazi Germany. That has benefited American universities, but has created a situation where uh, Germany lost its uh, intellectual uh, capacity, which hurt the firms in the long run as well. Uh, there are not many exoduses like this that we could have observed, uh, but other, other things closer to our region also refer to exodus of Jews when they were uh, able to travel to Israel and the United States in the second half of uh, 20th centuries from uh, uh, Soviet and post-Soviet countries. And that also can be measured as a big impact on these countries as well. And as well, interestingly, on American universities again, where, for example, uh, mathematics in the US has been transformed by the exodus of uh, Soviet ma mathematicians. Also, to a great extent, Israeli innovation sector has benefited as well. And uh, this, of course, has created a major problem for, uh, for the sending countries. So discrimination matters, and it matters for innovation and for the firms today as well. Beata, how much does it matter to uh, companies, do you think? What sort of impact are we talking about here? Well, it matters a lot. And it was very eloquently explained by Gary Becker in his theory of taste-based discrimination. Um, if there is a company whose CEO does not like having women in his firm, the company will end up hiring mostly men and paying more for talent. And this will translate into lower profits. 
Another cost of discrimination is poorer decision-making. If you have mostly white males in management teams, um, that means lower diversity of view and a greater likelihood of groupthink. And this may mean missing out on some business opportunities. Yeah, no, I think that there are all sorts of uh, examples of that, aren't there? And you know, I was thinking as well, just, just again, what history can teach us. You know, uh, if I think back to the 1970s and what happened with uh, Asians in East Africa, uh, where many of them were excluded from economies, one thinks of countries like Uganda, where they were often expelled and, and had to leave. You know, the hit the hit to economies is clearly very great. And that, that brings us perhaps to another aspect of this. We are, after all, called the Fearonomics podcast. You know, if I think again, looking at the, what happened in Africa in the 1970s, fear was, was very evident there. Fear and bias seemed to go together quite quite often uh, and sometimes you know to overcome fears we need to learn about about uh, issues to understand them better do you think uh, education policies do enough to to prevent discrimination or try to take the edge off discrimination Sergey? i think i think we should do more and you're right that uh, discrimination is often based on fear and prejudice and that refers back to historic and prehistoric times uh, people are built in a way that uh, the other people who look different are perceived as a threat. And this is how humans as animals have evolved. Now we live in social environment where actually other humans, especially as Beata has rightly said, humans with different experience, different ideas, uh, different skills can actually contribute to creating value. And when we talk to each other, we are engaged in normal uh, times, not in zero sum games where I need to get food away from you. And the more you have, the less I have to not zero sum games where we sit together, think about different ideas and build something of value, which benefits both of us. And this is a big change uh, of uh, the post-World War II world where uh, wars are becoming less common. And well, we are talking now in the, at the time when the war is happening in the European, on the European continent, but still in the longer term, uh, in the longer term, of course, we live in a less violent uh, world. And this is where diversity actually is an economic opportunity. And this is what people need to be taught. Uh, a lot of people still have a lot of prejudices regarding uh, the roles of women, uh, the differences among, uh, my, uh, among races, uh, the prejudices towards uh, LGBT and this myth which uh, may seem ridiculous to Western audiences are still persistent in many countries uh, outside the West and they have to be addressed. And a lot of research shows that uh, even very simple informational interventions where uh, we run a randomized control trial, where some people are treated with information about economic opportunities that emerge from, uh, from uh, uh, interaction with minorities, such, um, such treatments can per se reduce prejudice and increase uh, willingness to cooperate, cooperate. And there are actually uh, research papers by EBRD economists who show that. It's quite interesting, Beata, isn't it? Yeah, this is, seems to be all about trying to educate to reduce what's often described as fear of the other. Absolutely. But it's worth pointing out that educational systems can also perpetuate biases. Um, what I've noticed is that in many English speaking countries, girls are actively discouraged from studying mathematics. And if you look at the International uh, Mathematics Olympiad, 
a competition for secondary school students, typically only Eastern European teams include girls. All other teams uh, have boys only. And that's a communist legacy of uh, encouraging women's labor force participation, including in sciences. One of my favorite studies um, considered gender gap in mathematics scores among secondary school students in Germany and found that underperformance of girls was much lower in the regions of the former East Germany relative to those of the former West Germany. And this East-West difference was mostly due to girls' attitudes to their confidence and their competitiveness. So social norms matters. And if you look at the gender gap in math across Europe, you clearly see that it is much smaller in post-communist countries than in the Western Europe. Interesting. Yeah, no, that's that's very interesting data. We we live in a populist age, don't we? You know, we're we're an age of many populist leaders. Uh, and we often hear if we analyze their speeches, you know, they use discrimination, although they wouldn't be so bold as to call it that. They're very subtle in there, but they use discrimination as an effective tool to separate society, to to highlight divisions quite often. They lay blame on others quite often, you know, in a, in a sometimes in a very subtle way whether it's about race or, or in other ways. You know, we saw the escalation of discriminatory language when Donald Trump was in office. We can all look at some other populist leaders and see similar things. You know, Brexit obviously uses uh, anti-migration feelings as well uh, to, to get where it, uh, where it needed to be. How, how does society stand up to that? How do, how do economies get over that, uh, Sergey? Jonathan, uh, this is a very important issue, and research shows that uh, this language of hate Donald Trump used, in particular against Muslims, has led to real hate crimes in the U.S. There is a study which uh, provides evidence of causal relationship between Donald Trump's speeches and tweets and real hate crimes where Muslims were attacked in the United States. And in that sense, it's not just an abstract thing. For some people, it was extremely tragic, uh, the implications of Donald Trump's speeches. And in that sense, you're right, society should stand up to this. Now, I would say, and there is a lot of research which shows that, is um, that when people talk to minorities, when people work with minorities, when we people cooperate with minorities uh, on long-term projects, when they live uh, next to each other day-to-day uh, -day business, on a day-to-day basis, they actually start to overcome the prejudice. There is so-called contact hypothesis by American sociologist Golden, uh, Gordon Alpert, who formulated 70 years ago, yeah. which uh, tends to be consistent with data. But uh, this hypothesis includes several conditions, which are the interaction should be long-term, repeated, interaction should be on an equal basis, it should be cooperative relationship. And in that sense, you can overcome a prejudice. P -p yes, fear is a very strong emotion, but you can overcome fear if day uh, after day, you talk to other people and see that these are normal people. And this is where, this is where societies can actually do better. When we talk about refugees, uh, what matters is integration of refugees, providing them with uh, opportunities to uh, become um, a regular part of the society. That helps. That helps to overcome prejudice uh, from the natives.
It's an interesting one, Sergey, isn't it? I guess we've all seen it in the workplace where someone will say, I don't like X group, but you as an individual, Y, you're okay. You know, which is which is also not always a great way to do it, but but it's interesting that individual interaction, I guess, in that sense, makes a difference. I don't like econo- uh, economics uh, and economists, but you two are okay. No, that's uh, uh, let's uh, let's look at uh, what's happening globally, Beata. I mean, diversity policies uh, have been implemented in many many countries in many many economies. Do you think that works? I think that globalization promotes diversity because multinationals transfer culture across international borders. And in particular, they transfer meritocratic standards. Um, If you look at Japan, affiliates of foreign firms have a higher proportion of females among workers, managers, directors, and board members than Japanese firms of comparable size operating in the same industry. Uh, Moreover, foreign affiliates are also more likely to offer flexible working arrangements Um, and childcare subsidies. So they are more family friendly than traditional Japanese companies. Uh, You also see that foreign acquisitions of Japanese firms lead to an increase in the female share among workers a few years after the ownership change. Now, I remember talking about results of this study in Saudi Arabia And I received huge applause from the female section of the conference. And yes, there was a female section in that conference room. And I was delivering my presentation dressed neck to toe in a black robe. (laughs) Quite an experience. (laughs) Yes, I don't know whether they do unconscious bias training in Saudi Arabia. But uh, Sergey, you know, do you think those sort of initiatives in the workplace are an effective tool? I mean, you know, you've talked about perhaps maybe the best thing is what we, we just discussed, which is just interaction with a very diverse workforce. But what about attempts like like unconscious bias training in workforce? I think it's very, very important. Interactions matter, but every single person doesn't interact with all the minorities you can imagine on a day-to-day basis. And uh, uh you will not interact with these people unless they're hired and they may not be hired because of the unconscious bias. And in that sense, training each other, uh, helping each other understand what kind of barriers, um, conscious or unconscious, formal or informal, minorities uh, face in the workplace uh, is is very important. And uh, I myself, I would consider myself a tolerant person, but when I uh, uh, worked with the LGBT network in the BRD, and the BRD is a very tolerant institution uh, uh, for obvious reasons. Um, still, I learned a lot about how even within the BRD, which is formally and informally trying to integrate everybody, to involve everybody, still you have uh, problems that minorities face. And I think uh, learning about those barriers, about unconscious biases, understanding how to overcome such biases is really important because as we started uh, with uh, this argument, uh, overcoming discrimination is good for everybody, not just the discriminated minorities or women. 
Okay, let me remind you, you're listening to Fearonomics, which helps you confront and overcome your fears about the global economy. Our subject today is the Fearonomics of Discrimination. And joining me as ever are Sergei Guriev and Beata Yevorchik. Uh, let's drill down a little bit in some of the detail of this. Now, women are apparently 267.6 years away from gender parity in the area of economic participation and opportunity. That's according to the World Economic Forum. So, Beata, what are the key areas you think that need attention that where advance needs to be made? To me, paternity leave is one of the key areas where policy change can make a difference. Norway is a great example. Um, when Norway offered parental leave that could be shared between the two parents, the leave was mostly taken by mothers. And that's because many fathers were unsure how their employers would react to them taking uh, parental leave. But then a reform offering take it or lose it leave for just fathers made a huge difference. It induced men to take a substantial chunk of time off to care for their children. Uh, it changed social attitudes. It made it socially acceptable to do so. And it also changed how employers perceived female workers. Um, now, they were not worried about hiring just young women because they, you know, in the fear that these women would take time off to have children. Now, hiring men was associated with the same fears. And that meant um, that women's position uh, became more equal. They became less disadvantaged in the workplace. Let me tell you an anecdote. I used to have a partial position at the University of Oslo. And my hosts were always very kind. Every time I visited, uh, young faculty members would take me out to dinner. One time, two young male professors were inviting me to dinner, but they said, we can only meet you at 8 p.m. because we have to put our kids to bed. And what was interesting about it, it was not that their wives were working late or they were not available. No, that was the division of parental roles at home. And they felt it was absolutely okay to say this. Now, when I mentioned it to a journalist colleague in Poland, he found this story so outrageous and surprising that he wrote about it. <laughs> I love that story, you know, and uh, I, by the way, I champion uh, those males uh, in Oslo. Excellent. Uh, the, the other thing I would say, actually, is it shows how important culture is in all of this, you know, and, and, and this discussion. Uh, let, let's, again, stick with this thought, though, Beata. I mean, we've had obviously come through, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's pretty clear that that hurt women more than men. You know, we've seen the setback. According to McKinsey, women's jobs were almost twice as vulnerable to the pandemic than men's jobs. Women make up 39% of global employment, but accounted for 54% of overall job losses for that period. I mean, that is clearly out of kilter, pretty staggering. Why is that, Beat? So the main reason behind the fact that the COVID-induced recession hit women harder is that this recession was quite different from what we saw in all previous downturns uh, since World War II. Typically, a recession affects manufacturing sector more, and because more men are uh, employed in manufacturing, a recession leads to higher unemployment among men. COVID pandemic uh, affected services industries particularly hard, and because services um, 
employ predominantly women, that resulted in a disproportionate cost on uh, women employment. Another factor that played a role here were school closures. Um, surveys show that the lack of childcare forced some women to reduce hours or even stopped working altogether. But even women who were able to work uh, from home took a hit during the recession. And that's because often men's careers got prioritized and women tended to pick up um, all the duties on the home front, or at least majority of duties associated with homeschooling. And that meant that during the lockdowns, women were not applying for jobs. You know, they couldn't show their bosses how committed they were. They were not updating the resumes on LinkedIn. And that would have been fine. You know, these were decisions taken at the level of the family, except the fact that we have gender wage gap and glass ceiling means that women are more likely to earn less than their partners. And that means that COVID is perpetuating this inequality because it has set women behind. So next time another shop comes around, uh, everybody will look at the mother to pick up the slack and let her career take a backseat. Okay, I mean, and gender wasn't the only division we saw as a result of COVID. Actually, you know, if you, you know, if we think division and discrimination are, are two sides of the coin, uh, the same side of the coin. I mean, Sergey, other vulnerable groups, ethnic minorities, LGBTQI plus communities were also unevenly affected by higher death rates. Uh, they often self-harmed more. They were more isolated, more mental health deterioration uh, for a whole load of reasons. Do you think, Sergey, that we've learned some lessons from this pandemic on discrimination? Yes, I think I think so. This pandemic actually exacerbated many inequalities you mentioned and Beatrice mentioned. In terms of gender, indeed, the two main issues that we've already discussed are the uh, need to take care of young children, the so-called child penalty that we are going to talk about later, and the unequal access to mathematics, STEM professions, uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, uh, where women are still underrepresented. And of course, if you're a software engineer or mathematician, you're more likely to be able to work online, right? And in that sense, pandemic hit people uh, in STEM professions much less. And that, of course, uh, exacerbated gender inequality. But more generally, uh, when people uh, thought that a pandemic is a great leverer because virus doesn't know whether you're rich or poor, whether you're majority or minority, uh, these people were greatly mistaken exactly because if you're rich and have a big house, it's easier for you to work from home. If you have savings, pandemic doesn't hit you that much and you can afford to take uh, time off and not go to work where, when it's dangerous. If your job is in high skill segment, you're more likely to work online and so on and so forth. Um, and in that sense, people who are more vulnerable, people who uh, had to work in low skill uh, manual occupations, they were hit harder, both economically, because those jobs were um, uh, were uh, hit uh, by the pandemic and the lockdowns, but also physically in terms of health, because these people were more likely to, uh, uh, to get sick and, and even die. So in that sense, if you're a minority which is discriminated, and because of that, you are uh, in the segment uh, of the economy, which is a low-skilled uh, manual 
job segment, then this pandemic hit you even uh, even worse. And that is that is a big big lesson, and that's why many societies have re rethought their social uh, welfare policies. And actually, that's what we see in the United States, where President Bi Biden uh, put together a huge. Uh, social welfare uh, package to help the most vulnerable parts of the society. Now, the other thing of recent years, you know, alongside COVID, the, the major force of recent decades economically has been globalization, of course. Uh, and, and Beata, I wonder how you think that's impacted gender parity and, and women in particular. There are many channels at play here, but let me focus on just two. First, um, trade liberalization induces the most productive firms to start exporting and to adopt new technologies. This technological upgrading means that less physical strength may be required of workers. So now women are as good as men on the production floor and their labor market outcomes are improved. So trade can benefit less skilled women. In contrast, working for an exporting firm can be less kind to college-educated women who interact with customers abroad. And that's because uh, working for an exporter means often working across time zones, and means interacting with customers early in the morning or late at night simply because they are in a different time zone. And that uh, collides with childcare duties um, at home. And this may induce women to choose um, to take a less prominent role, not to, lean, not to lean in, in order to limit this conflict between work and family life. Or perhaps uh, managers or colleagues think that women are less able to accommodate those more demanding working times, and therefore they are simply not given these extra duties, they are not being promoted. Whatever the mechanism, the data show that as firms export more to countries further away in time zones, the gender wage gap increases. Yeah, it's interesting that that slides quite well, doesn't it, into this question, which, you know, Sergey mentioned just a few minutes ago, the child penalty penalty in effect he talked about. But, you know, you could call it the motherhood penalty as well. That makes up 80 uh, percent of the gender pay gap. So, so why hasn't that been dealt with, Beata? Why aren't there more inclusive policies around that? Well, culture and tradition matter. Um, for instance, studies show that the attitudes to gender roles map very well with the evolution of female labor participation over time and across countries. Uh, for instance, since this 1970s, for instance, since the 1970s, American women became less traditional in terms of their perception of gender roles. More and more women disagree with the notion that husbands should be breadwinners and wives should be just homemakers. Um, women have also become more confident. More and more women agree uh, with the notion that they are as capable as men uh, in the workforce. Um, and this change this evolution of perceptions has coincided with increased labor force participation. But interestingly, a reversal in those trends took place in the mid-1990s. Mid Culture and attitude determine how women see themselves, how they form their aspirations, and how they respond to what they think the society expects of them. 
We, we mentioned the pandemic. Um, during the pandemic, women did more homeschooling than men did. And interestingly, this was even true in families where the mother earned more than the father. So it wasn't a purely economic decision. It was a cultural decision associated with uh, gender norms. Yeah, we're back to culture again. Very, very important. Yeah. Okay, so gay. Yes, I fully agree that culture matters. Culture changes. And uh, Biala has mentioned uh, Eastern and Western European countries. Germany had the same culture before it was split into East and West. And now we see huge differences between Eastern and Western uh, attitudes to gender rules. And of course, uh, the communist and post-communist societies put a huge emphasis on uh, the uh, labor force participation among women. Uh, because communist ideology was supposed to generate as much industrial output to stand up to evil West. And so involving women into production process was very important. Uh, however, that didn't eliminate uh, uh, motherhood penalty. Now, one thing I would mention is a lot of people say motherhood penalty is unavoidable because of physiology. Women give birth and men don't. Women nurse uh, young children and, and men don't. Well, with technology is, uh, is changing too. But uh, one thing I would really mention is motherhood penalty also exists for adopted children. So uh, this is not just about giving birth. This is indeed a cultural phenomenon and culture can of course change. And that's very, very important. I would mention uh, one other thing. Uh, Beata mentioned the paternity leaves which is a very important tool to equalize men and women in terms of um, taking care of uh, kids. Uh, in, interestingly, early on, the cultural change was again slow. So there is a study on Sweden by Guida Fribel and co-authors, uh, which shows that initially the paternity leave was taken by men around sports events like Olympics <laughs> or World Cup. So men did like to spend time at home, <laughs> but they were additional additional uh, things to take into account. But by now, of course, uh, of course, things are changing and changing quickly. So culture matters. And on the other hand, culture can change. And uh, this is why creating role models, uh, setting laws that promote the right attitudes uh, is important. As a man, I'm sitting here hanging my head in shame, actually, at that, uh, those last thoughts. Uh, let, look, time is marching on. You're listening to the Fearonomics uh, podcast, and we're looking at discrimination and the fears around that. Uh, we have to march on, too, because uh, time is certainly running away from us. But, Sergei, there have been a, a series of studies that show that uh, LGBTQ plus workers often consciously or unconsciously steer clear of some occupations, some workplaces, because they perceive they might not fit into them or won't be welcomed uh, into them, often worried about the fear of discrimination. I mean, that must really hurt the labour market in terms of both diversity and resilience. Uh, you know, if we had, uh, you know, perhaps more diverse people in some industries, uh, whether it's in, say, social media, uh, where there'd be more diverse approach to algorithms, you know, do we think we would see a better economy as, as a result of that, so, you know, this worry that some sectors are, are just, you know, not welcoming? Uh, that's exactly true, and I fully, I fully agree. So Beata talked about uh, Gary Becker's argument, saying that if uh, LGBT cannot enter this industry, then it should be an opportunity for a manager uh, 
to make additional profits for hiring LGBT in my firm in this industry uh, because uh, uh, there is no competition from my peers, other managers. But of course, the problem is, as you mentioned, that sometimes you have the prejudice that uh, creates the uh, barrier, the glass ceiling. Since LGBT people uh, know that they're not welcome in this particular industry, they will not invest in gaining skills in studying this particular um, uh, specialty, uh, getting ready for this particular career. And there'll be uh, a self-sustaining prof prophecy, self-supporting uh, uh, equilibrium where discrimination uh, is what's called statistical discrimination, not taste-based discrimination. Uh, you don't see uh, women in corporate boardrooms and you know that women are just not fit for this job. But the reality is that women don't go to business schools because they don't they know that they cannot become top managers and board members and the same of course applies to lgbt and Beata, how do you think the ebrd countries are doing in terms of anti-discrimination legislation so jonathan anti-discrimination legislation matters but to me a more pressing area is the care economy which is not developed enough in our countries of operations Many of them are going through demographic transition. They are becoming old before they become rich. And going forward, the need to care for the elderly is bound to put more and more pressure on women. So developing the elderly care sector should be a priority. And this should be facilitated by government policies because we cannot count on the private sector alone to provide a solution. Similarly, if these countries want to increase the birth rates, the best way of doing so is through provision of widely available, high quality, affordable childcare. And again, there is room for government support here. Uh, Sergey, according to the EBRD transition report 2016-17, uh, across the EBRD regions, inequality is often connected to circumstances at birth, you know, a different type of discrimination. What needs to be done to change that? Yes, this is uh, the most important uh, problem, inequality of opportunity, where uh, inequality is driven by circumstances that you cannot affect. You cannot choose your parents. You cannot choose the place of birth. You cannot choose ethnicity and uh, uh, race. And in that sense, of course, it's very unfair. And the uh, policies that can help address that is, of course, to provide equal access to education, to other public goods, to provide minimum uh, living standards to everybody. Wherever you are born, you should not be locked into poverty traps. Also provide opportunities for mobility, to move to opportunity, to move to jobs to move to better universities. But first and foremost, of course, it's uh, social support and access to public goods, first and foremost, education. Beata. Improving institutions to create a level playing field is hugely important, just like um, Sergey said. Um, interestingly, uh, research done at the EBRD shows that one of the reasons why people migrate is low quality of public services, which is associated with um, low quality institutions, poor governance. People migrate because they believe that in the countries they go to, there is scope for social mobility, 
And that social mobility is often achieved through education. Interesting. I mean, we, we've really roamed around this area over the past uh, few minutes where we've been talking about the theoronomics of discrimination. Let, let's try to draw a few conclusions. So how do we use all this knowledge? You know, there's a lot of studies out there. We've talked about many of them. We've got a lot of knowledge from around the globe. How do we use it to wipe out discrimination? In fact, is that is that even possible, uh, Sergey? It is, of course, possible. And we see a huge improvement in terms of how we treat minorities and women in modern society, especially in uh, developed countries, especially in, in uh, Northern Europe, I should say. We talked a lot about uh, math, for example. And there are studies which show that uh, the gap in terms of uh, math scores between boys and girls are smaller and actually non-existent in uh, Nordic countries where there is more gender equality. And here both uh, cultural changes and laws matter and they reinforce each other. If voters want anti-discrimination laws, these laws are more likely to be passed. And if anti-discrimination laws are passed, then uh, more and more voters understand that norms are shifting. Uh, there is a study by EBRD economists which shows that countries which pass gay marriage uh, laws uh, are more likely to see uh, more support from citizens towards uh, uh, gays and LGBTQI plus community more generally. And in that sense, in that sense, uh, the efforts can be made and should be made. And uh, progress is here. There is no way to compare what uh, discrimination was like in 1950s or 60s and what it is today. I highly recommend on a lighter note, this TV series called Mad Men, which shows the time of change in 1960s in New York City. Uh, it starts in early 1960s where there was discrimination against uh, uh, people of color, against women, against uh, people of different ethnicities and uh, these things was were changing and now of course new york city is very different but many places in our regions region including are still like new york uh, city in 1960 before the equal rights movement so things can change things will change a lot of work can be done and should be done and we know what what to do. It's interesting. I was only talking about madmen over uh, a breakfast uh, a few days ago in this question of workplaces actually and changes in the workplace. It is a, an interesting uh, example of, you know, showing change over a period of time. Beata, what can we do? Give, give us some optimism uh, over these fears and breaking the myth. Legislative changes are important, but small actions matter as well. Each woman to whom the cause of gender equality is dear can make a difference by speaking up about it, by pointing out biases at the workplace. And I think that's particularly important when you sit on a hiring committee, uh, by mentoring younger women, by encouraging girls to study science. And I'm optimistic because small changes add up and can make a difference. Yeah, I think I'm with you there as well. You know, having been the EBRD's diversity champion internally in the organization for the past few years, you know, I recognize, you know, every small step counts. Uh, and it and it is a journey of small steps. And I guess if I was to sum up on all this, you know, I think we know a lot more today than we knew even a few years ago. There's a lot of study in this area that helps us. And we are on a journey of small steps. It would be nice to take really big steps but I, I think all the small steps add up. So I'm sort of optimistic about the way things are going, but I also recognize it's a very long journey uh, to get rid of fears, 
people's fears and culture is crucial you know i think changing culture takes a long time but it is absolutely crucial um thank you very much for listening to fearonomics it is the podcast where together with beata and sergey we've been helping you confront and overcome your fears about the global economy fascinating discussion we've had over the past few minutes big thanks to them as well you can review us on itunes soundcloud or anywhere else you get your podcast from share your ideas with us on twitter at ebrd hashtag fearonomics and that is it for this time we'll see you again This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD. We'll be back soon with the next episode. In the meantime, remember to review and rate us. It will help others to find us. Thank you and goodbye.